If you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. For our scripture reading this morning, and then following the reading of scripture, we will uh, sing the Gloria Patri, which is printed for you in your uh, bulletin. So Matthew five seventeen to 20, please uh, stand together for the reading of God's holy word. <clears throat> Hear God's word. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. Amen. After a sermon last week on Thanksgiving, we are returning to the Heidelberg Catechism and the questions that it's going to be taking us through. Now, we didn't have a catechism uh, responsive reading today, but we come back to the part of the catechism which is teaching us and talking to us about how it is that we can show gratitude to the Lord for the uh, deliverance from our sin and misery that he so wonderfully has provided for us. And as it begins the section on living, showing gratitude, it takes us to the law of God, uh, particularly the Ten Commandments. And so two weeks ago, I preached a general sermon on the law and uh, how it, uh, it in generally applies to our lives. And I'm going to do the same thing today. Uh, I want to do another message to you on the law in general before we get into the specific commandments of the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> uh, the place of the law is a much debated issue as we've thought about and reflected on it. Uh, the two great enemies of the proper use of the law is legalism and antinomianism. Legalism making the law meritorious, that we obey the law and somehow win the favor of God by keeping the law. And antinomianism, which is the viewpoint of those who say, we, uh, we don't, the New Testament believer, New Covenant believers don't need the law in our lives. We're totally disconnected from it. And Sinclair Ferguson, he had a series of brief messages on the Ligonier website recently. And he said regarding these issues, and he says, the gospel is the answer to both. And the gospel is the answer to both because the gospel tells us that salvation comes by the atoning work of Christ alone. There is nothing that can be added to it. There's nothing you can do to add to that work. You're saved 
by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. It's his redeeming work. He's the only one that merits anything. And so we can't rest on the law in a legalistic fashion because that will not bring us redemption, Christ alone. But then the other aspect of the law or another aspect of the gospel, excuse me, is that the scriptures teach us that when we are purchased by the blood of Christ, we are purchased to be long to God and to honor him in a life of holiness. And so there the law comes into play for our benefit in being purchased and bought children of God living for his glory. And you and I are called to a life of sanctification and perseverance. Uh, Hebrews twelve fourteen says, pursue peace with all men, holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And even though there are those who are critical of Paul and even sometimes Christ for their neglect of the law or their overuse of the law, they, the criticisms go either way. The reality is uh, God has given us the law. He gave it to govern and oversee Israel as a nation, but he gives it to us to, to show us the righteous life that God requires for us. And there are a number of good books. There's some that aren't so good, but there's a number of good books that help us think about this. But one that I commend to you today is a book by Sinclair Ferguson, called Devoted to God. And in that, in that book, he is talking about our sanctification and how we can grow in that. And one chapter is devoted to the law and the place of the law. And I want to just read you a few sentences of his in regard to that. He says, the law is fulfilled by love. It is not replaced by love. This fulfillment means that law is love-shaped and that love is law-shaped. In fact, love was always at the heart of God's law. It was given by love to be received in love and obeyed through love. The divine commandments could be summed up in the great commandment to love God with heart, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus himself teaches that if we love him, we will keep his commandments. Not only does love not abolish law, but law commands love. Love provides motivation for obedience, while law provides direction for love. And so it's not law or love, it's both. Uh, That last statement is just so wonderful. Love gives us the motivation for obedience and the law provides direction for our love. And so as we come to the statements of Christ and we're thinking about that, he underscores the importance of the law beginning at verse 21, following what we read today. He's going to go into some specific application of different commandments to the area of new covenant living. But in these verses in 17 through 20, he's giving a more general overview of the value and importance and significance of the law and the ongoing uh, validity and abiding 
um, value of it. And so in these four verses, uh, kind of a four-point outline, uh, we're going to talk about the fulfillment of the law, the permanence of the law, the authority of the law, and, and sanctification or righteousness, uh, which is given to us um, in, the, in Jesus' fulfillment of the law. So fulfillment, a permanence, authority, and sanctification or righteousness. So in verse 17, we have the concept of fulfillment. There's a touch of the permanence in this as well. But he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It would be, it's hard for me to understand how people can misunderstand this, though they do. But we have here Jesus' clear affirmation. He's not come to get rid of the law. Uh, Some elements of it have a different role in our lives than they did in Israel, like the ceremonial law and the civil law. But nevertheless, the the moral principles of the law still have an abiding validity. He didn't come to abolish that. He came to fulfill them. There's a, you see a little... A literary technique in Jesus' comments. There's sort of a back and forth um, a rhythm that he, he gives in this verse and the following verses. He, he, the, he do, the negative, do not think that I've come to abolish the law. The positive, no, I've come to fulfill it. Or like in verse 18, not uh, the least, the smallest letter or the least stroke of the pen will pass away. But positively, every part will be fulfilled and accomplished. And verse 19, if you break one of the least of these commandments and teach others, you're going to be least in the kingdom. But if you keep them and teach them, you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus is making it very clear to the pious Jews, to the um, Gentiles, who certainly would be rebuking the libertines who wanted to live however they wanted to live, Saying, no, I haven't come to abolish that law, but I've come to fulfill it. How does he fulfill it? What's kind of being communicated in that idea? He fulfills it because he lives an obedient life, perfectly obedient life, under the law. In Galatians 4, 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those under the law that they might receive the full adoption as sons. So Jesus was under the law in an Old Testament sense as well as just under God's divine commands. Uh, Jesus was under the law. Why was he under the law? So that he could fulfill it, so he could live an obedient life. And the righteousness of Christ, as we'll see in a minute, is a gift to us because of his act of obedience. It's part of our hope. Jesus not only cleanses us of sin, he gives us his obedience, which is a great blessing. And that's how one of the ways in which he came to fulfill the law. He fulfills the promises of the law. Along with the commands, there are also many promises, some predictions, some warnings. But he came to fulfill all those. Uh, The law retains its validity because of Jesus using that, fulfilling those uh, commands and those uh, restrictions. 
Uh, Jesus fulfills the law as the answer to all the types and images of the law. We have the not only the moral qualities of the law, which are fulfilled in Christ, but we have the ceremonial law and all the sacrificial system, which now we don't live under, but Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. He came to put away sin once for all by the sacrifice of himself. So that now you and I don't need to bring a lamb for the sacrifice. We don't need to bring a bull to the altar because that our sins are taken away by that once for all sacrifice of Christ. He fulfills all that. Uh, we're no longer under a, a theocratic national church as Old Testament Israel was. Now we're a church of every language, people, nation, and tongue. Christ brings the fulfillment of all of that. So we're not under the civil law in the same way Israel was, but the moral principles are valid in thinking through. So Jesus establishes the moral and the ethical uh, requirements of the law as still valid for God's people. And we, we kind of see the historical unfolding of all of this. In the Garden of Eden, God's design for man was to live a godly and righteous life in fellowship with his creator. But he sinned against God. But the design of God for man to live in that relationship has not changed. And so what had to happen? Something had to happen to to take away that sin. The law prepared us for the coming of Christ. Christ comes to pay the penalty for our sin. And in the new covenant... The design of God for his children to live in fellowship with him in righteousness and holiness, that design has not changed. So you and I, after Christ, still live, still called to live in holiness and righteousness and honoring God all our days. So he is the fulfillment of the law. He's for the fulfillment of all the promises, for fulfillment of all the prophecies about the son who would come. And so that's where it gets its validity and its fulfillment. The second thing he stresses is its permanence. In verse 18, I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He's affirming uh, again and in another way the permanence, the perpetuity uh, of the moral requirements of the law. And it, his, his phrasing of it is interesting. He says, not the smallest letter. There he would have been thinking of the Greek language. The smallest letter is the iota, just a little... St- a stroke uh, on, on a, a pe- pe- by the pencil on a page, not the smallest letter or not the, um, or not the least stroke of a pen. And there he would have had in mind the Hebrew language because there are a couple different letters in Hebrew that if you looked at them quickly, they look the same. They look almost identical. And the only difference between them is this very tiny little stroke 
That's what distinguishes it. And Jesus is saying, not the very least things of the law are going to disappear until everything is accomplished. Until everything is finished. Until the heavens and earth disappear, that will, they will be disappear or be reformed in the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But all the work that he came to do has to be accomplished. <clears throat> in his day, in his time, in, in part, he would be thinking about his work in, a, in, a, in finishing the work of redemption. But the ultimate conclusion and fulfillment of everything will be when Christ comes again. And the validity and the permanence uh, of that truth and of that law for us in guiding our lives remains in effect. Not in an external way like under Israel, but spiritually God will write his law on our hearts in the new covenant and we will follow him. The third element in verse 19 is the authority. Uh, if, if anyone breaks one of the least of these commandments <clears throat> and teaches others to do the same they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The statement seems to have more to do with our status in the kingdom of heaven, not so much our entrance into it, but the thing that is, uh, Jesus is underscoring and affirming, uh, affirming is the importance of every element of the law that it, it all has value, that there's, it's, there's a danger to us to neglect or have contempt, uh, that when we, we read, you shall have no other gods before me, then we understand that's significant. Of course, we understand that's important. That's not a, a small law. That's an important law. But other laws that reveal the character of God and the holiness of God, we have to take into account and not disregard, but value them. Again, not in a legalistic sense, but to see that as a, a help and a pattern for our walk of holiness. <clears throat> and then the fourth is righteousness or sanctification. Uh, Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the people Jesus was talking to, this would have been really a shocking thing. Because the people who were considered the best people in their world and in their society, the elite, the really top rung people in the society of Israel at that time were considered the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law. The teachers of the law who know so much about the scriptures who have massive portions of the Old Testament memorized. And they would be teaching that law. They, they were considered kind of the cream of the judicial society. And then there were the Pharisees. <clears throat> the Pharisees began as a sect in Israel 100 or 200 years earlier uh, when after the Greek conquering of all of that part of the world, 
the Israel society was beginning to, to adapt to all the culture of the Greek um, gods and goddesses and all the, the pagan elements of the religion. And, and so the society began to deteriorate. And I have, have a lot of unbelief. And so a sect called the Pharisees, the pure ones, they, their mission was to preserve the, uh, uh, the holiness and the righteousness of Israel against this decline that was taking place. But the problem is, by the time Christ came, uh, they were totally corrupt within. They looked good on the outside, but their hearts were corrupt. And so Jesus is making a, a contrast and importance, important point. You have to have a righteousness that's greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees. And they would have been astounded by that. How could that possibly be? Well, as in his teaching and other places, you see that the difference is they were partial in their commitment to the law. And you and I have to be wholly sold, in, sold out for it, for righteousness and holiness. The Pharisees had um, a commitment and they would um, be very punctilious about a lot of different elements of the law, but they would also find any excuse they could to not obey the law. One of the things Jesus confronted them with was uh, the, the command, honor your father and your mother. But the Pharisees had made a, a, an arrangement that if you committed that money to God, you didn't have to give it to God, you just had to commit it to God. You could still use it and not honor your father and your mother. And he rebuked them saying they were holding to the traditions of men and not really holding to the law of God. Uh, they were, Jesus would tell them, You're, you look good on the outside, but inside there's dead men's bones. He would tell them uh, that the Pharisees did their righteousness for the praise and applause of men. Jesus says, you don't do that. You you do your service for God. When he, later on in the Sermon on the Mount, when he teaches about prayer, he says, when you pray, don't go in out to the street corners to be praised by men, but go into your closet and pray to your father in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. They were proud in what they did in their religion. And you and I are told to deny ourselves. Uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the, the publican, the tax collector. The Pharisee stands and he says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, like this tax collector. And the tax collector doesn't even, can't even look up to heaven. But he bows his head. And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's righteousness. That's greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees. But the preeminent fulfillment of that <clears throat> is in Christ. And Paul gives us a perfect statement of it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says to us, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us 
that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God imputes our sin and puts it on Christ. And he takes Christ's righteousness and puts it on us. So that we become the righteousness of God in him. And it's Christ's righteousness that makes our righteousness or that's given to us to make us more righteous than the Pharisees. It's not our own. It's Christ. And all that he has done. You and I are called on to appreciate um, all of the word of God that God has given to us. And to use it as he helps us and directs us. Uh, to the glory of God, that we have friends that will tell us, well, I want to be a New Testament Christian. And my advice to you is, no, what you want to be, you want to be an Old Testament and a New Testament Christian. You want to be uh, the whole word, be a part of your life. And may we, you and I value God's word and as part of our gratitude to the Lord, walk in holiness to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the, the, the wonder of your love. Thank you for the calling we have to, to walk in godliness. We thank you that we don't do it out of our own strength and certainly not for our own glory, but we do it out of gratitude and love for you, that we might demonstrate our uh, thankfulness for the deliverance from our sin and misery that you have so richly given us. May we use your law lawfully in a way that helps us and guides us in our our Christian walk. And we pray that you would be glorified in all this. In Jesus' name, amen.